How are you today? Awesome. I'm Tim. Hi. I'm uh, going to uh, continue leading us through the book of Exodus this morning. And Nick was right. We are in Exodus 7. He knows what's going on. He's got it. He's got it. Uh, So this week, I'm just going to jump right into my intro, if you're okay with that. This week, I was, uh, I was texting with some folks from the 513, Cincinnati. I had someone actually accurately guess my area code recently on my cell phone, which was really impressive, just out of the blue. They're like, it's 513, right? I'm like, how'd you know that? Anyway, um, I think they might know all the area codes. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, I was texting with some, uh, some friends back home. I like to check in with, uh, with friends, and I think they like to check in with me. I'm not really sure, but uh, I think it goes both ways. And um, my buddy Aaron Adams and I, we sometimes will, will kind of trade back and forth what we're preaching on, and he's preaching this morning, actually, in the book of Joshua. So he sent me his sermon, and, and that got me to go online, and I, I watched... Um, a little bit of uh, one of Mount Carmel uh, Christian churches, church services, which is always a humbling experience when you watch online the place that you have, uh, have moved from to, to, to come here and realize that they're doing great without you. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to. Anyway, uh, so I was watching their, their, their worship music set and... Uh, uh, Joe, Joe Hubble is the, the worship minister there at Mount Carmel now, and, and Joe and I have been connected for, for quite a while, and I, I watched, you know, what he and his, his crew were doing, and they were doing a fantastic job, so I was like, you know, I need to text Joe and give him some encouragement, so I, I sent him a text message, and we went back and forth, and it got me thinking about uh, my relationship with Joe because I met Joe when Joe was a high schooler. I was in my mid-20s. It was my early years in ministry. And Joe, along with some other guys that were in high school at the time, uh, were looking to get involved in a discipleship group. And our youth minister at the time, Tim Dunn at Mount Carmel, uh, came into my office and said, Hey, I've got these guys. Um, they're, they're music types. They're artsy types. Um, not into athletics. They don't have any athletic prowess. And I thought they'd be a good fit for you. <laughs> he didn't say it quite that insulting, but it was pretty close. And I said, sure, let's, let's do this. So I gathered these guys together, and, and I've, I've remained connected uh, to varying degrees to all of them to this day. But, but Joe uh, is a fantastic musician, and uh, eventually Joe ended up on staff at Mount Carmel after spending time at uh, Cincinnati Christian University. Uh, and, and Joe ended up on my team, my staff team. In fact, uh, when I left Mount Carmel, uh, I was the teaching and worship minister there, and Joe was the m- music director, and he was on the worship team with me. Um, and so my experience in my time with Joe was interesting because uh, we had a good friendship, but I was always, by title at least, in positions where I had a leadership role and, and he was the, the underling, so to speak. 
which feels weird even for me to say, but that's just the way that it was. It wasn't like I was like, you do as I say or anything like that, because I just, I don't know why I'm not wired that way, but um, but Joe was, you know, he was the disciple in my discipleship group. He was the staff person on the hierarchy or org chart under where I was at at the time. But the thing about Joe is, Joe has more musical talent in his pinky finger than I have in my whole being. Like, I kid you not, if you ever listen to him play guitar, you will be like, whoa. That's what I do every time I listen to him. Even when I, when I was listening this past week, I was like, man, Joe, you're killing it. Um, and so Joe and I, obviously, as team members, we would be paired uh, in worship music uh, teams together. And sometimes even we would do acoustic sets together, just he and I. And I found that even though I had the, the title or the, the role of leadership uh, over, over where he was at, I knew better. When Joe and I were together, I didn't care what my title was. I listened to what Joe told me to do. Because Joe was far superior to me as a music person. Joe would do something crazy and be like, hey, Timmy, you want to take this lead part this time? I'd be like, if you think I can play it, because I don't think I can. And Joe would sit painstakingly, it must have been, and show me the lead part that I needed to play, and then trusted that I could actually do it. And I somehow pulled it off, not to the level that he would, but I did. Anytime Joe had any kind of input into what we should be doing musically, I listened and I applied what it was. And our team and myself, we were better for me having listened to Joe's leadership, regardless of what title I had in the situation. And so it's not surprising when I watch what Joe's doing online to see how good he's doing at it because Joe was a leader even if he didn't always have the title. And I knew that about him. And I was wiser for having listened to him in those moments. But I wasn't always that wise. In ministry, especially people like me that, that come into this job, you have a tendency to maybe think like you're the fixer. I'm the one that's going to lead people. I'm going to lead in the right way. And if I don't do it, no one can. And maybe you've struggled with that too. Have you ever said a phrase like, I can do it better my way? Uh, I don't need them because I can do it faster. My way is more efficient. I really want to get done by this time. And if I try to bring this other person along, it's going to take double the time. I can hear the chuckles in the room. You've been there. You may not do it to the degree that maybe I've done, but you think that way sometimes, especially if you're given a title where it's almost expected that you're the person that's going to come in and do the stuff and lead the way and fix it and all that other stuff. But the reality is, is that we are just people. We are imperfect, sinful people. And the story of Exodus really comes down to people and their ability or inability to trust. And not trust in themselves, but to trust the leadership of one who's above them. And in the story of Exodus, the one above them is God. 
And if you've been following along, maybe you've been reading through Exodus as we've been going along the way, or, or maybe you've just caught the highlights in the sermons. But at each juncture, we pointed out some important developments amongst the people and their ability to trust in the leadership of God. For instance, in Exodus chapter 1, when we see the story of Pharaoh issuing that horrible edict to kill all of the boys, it's the midwives that fear God over and against the Pharaoh that choose to go the way of God rather than the edict of Pharaoh. And it ends up resulting in lives saved. And furthermore, it's the mother of Moses that chooses to go against the rule that all baby boys are to be killed and secretly takes care of her son until she can't anymore and even then hides him in a basket, setting him down the course to end up being in the keep of Pharaoh's daughter. And on the other side of trusting God is our good pal Moses. You know, Moses gives off a vibe kind of like what I was talking about where I can fix things myself. I see that Egyptian slave master beating up my Israelite brother. I'm going to go do something about that. I'm going to kill him in secret and hide him in the sand. No, you're not, Moses. You're going to get caught. He does. He goes on the run. And then when we find Moses at the burning bush, the bush on fire but not consumed by it, when God asks Moses to go to the people, what does Moses do? He issues every excuse he can think of as to why he's not going to trust God's call to get up, go, and speak to the Egyptian king to deliver the message and to get the ball rolling on his people being brought out of Egypt and toward freedom. See, in the book of Exodus, the stories are on repeat of people that choose to trust God, a people that choose to believe, I'm going to do it my way, and if I'm asked to do it another way, I'm going to back out. And it's our hero, Moses. Funny to call him a hero, isn't it? When you think about it. It's our hero, Moses. It's actually the one that doesn't really look the part. So here's how, where the story goes from there. So we, we, met, we met Moses at the burning bush along with God, and, and we learned the, the name of God that's given that means I am who I am. Uh, I, I was, I will be, I am always with you. That message is given in his name to Moses. And that's where we left off last week. And, and we're going to look at a small story in Exodus 7. Uh, I like to call it the pregame to the plagues. Because it's not one of the plagues, but it is a miraculous moment that God does. But in the lead up to that, we have Moses doing his run-of-the-mill excuse-making. And his excuse-making goes so far that God finally says, you know what? I've heard enough. I'm still sending you, but because you're being a coward and saying you can't do this thing that I'm telling you you can, I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you, and he's going to be your hands and your mouth in the situation. And he sends him along, and in Exodus 4, there's this weird story where God comes to kill Moses. Uh, I just need to tell you about it really quickly. It's, it's important. You see, God issued this 
whole deal about circumcision. And you remember how I mentioned that Moses grew up uh, an Egyptian? Even his own father-in-law and the people that came across him at the well thought that he was Egyptian? Well, (laughs) he wasn't circumcised. And that was a problem because he was supposed to be circumcised as an Israelite. And so God comes and he's going to do something about this situation with Moses. And his wife realizes what's going on. And there's some weird stuff. You can read it. But basically, the problem is taken care of. It's a very weird story. But you see, God is very serious about people not only answering his call, but being the embodiment of the kind of people that he wants them to be, even this person, Moses, that he's called out of Egypt himself to go lead the way. So after that little hiccup, so to speak, uh, Moses meets his brother Aaron, and they, just, they, they go, and they go to, to Pharaoh as, as God tells them to. And, and so there's a little genealogy in there, and then a repetition of God confirming to them how this is going to go down. And, and the process is, is pretty simple. God is going to tell Moses what needs to be said and done. Moses is going to tell Aaron what needs to be said and done. And then Aaron is going to say and or do what needs to be said or done. And it's that simple. Now, as I said, I think last week, if you've ever watched any film depictions of the Exodus story, Aaron kind of gets the back seat, and it's all about Moses, right? Moses is the one with the staff and the booming voice shouting out, uh, let my people go, and all this different stuff. Yeah, Moses, again, Moses cowered out of the situation. His audience was one, (laughs) and not the kind of good way that we think about it, where, you know, I serve an audience of one God. His audience of one was his brother Aaron. Aaron was going to be the one that was going to put himself And the crosshairs, in the first instance of this happening, occurs in Exodus 7, verses 8 through 13. And that's the story that we're going to look at today. So if you open your Bibles, or you have them open already, you can turn to verse 8 in chapter 7, and it reads as follows. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, do one of your amazing acts, then say to Aaron, take your shepherd's rod and throw it down in front of Pharaoh, and it will turn into a cobra. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his shepherd's rod in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it turned into a cobra. Then Pharaoh called together his wise men and wizards, And Egypt's religious experts did the same thing by using their secret knowledge. Each one threw down his rod, and they turned into cobras. But but then Aaron's rod swallowed up each of their rods. However, Pharaoh remained stubborn. They wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had said. All right, so this is an interesting story, an interesting development. Now, you should know that this isn't the first time a shepherd's staff has been turned into a snake. <laughs> In fact, God at the burning bush had Moses do this little throw down your staff thing, and, and it happened. 
And then when Moses and Aaron went to the Israelite people and brought the elders together, they needed proof that God was actually the one behind what he was telling them was going to come about, and, and they, they do this thing again. So they've had some practice at this. And for the Israelite people, at least at that moment, they're a finicky bunch. They believe one moment, and then they, they get a little, uh, you know, I don't want to be out here. So anyway, that's, that's later on in the story. But, uh, but in the moment that the, the staff and the snake thing happens, they, they believe, they, they get excited. And so Moses and, and Aaron, they're going to go do this before Pharaoh. But if you've followed along in the story along the way, you'll know that God has repeatedly told Moses and then Moses and Aaron, uh, I'm going to have you go do this stuff and say this stuff to Pharaoh, but he is not going to relent. But he has them do it anyway. And so they go before Pharaoh. And did you, did you catch the sequence in there? It's pretty deliberate. Remember, God tells Moses... And then Moses tells Aaron, and then Aaron, all Aaron has to do is literally chuck a stick. That's it. That's his job. And, and, and Moses doesn't have to go give a big speech. He doesn't have to go talk to people he's never met before. All Moses has to do in the story is tell his brother something. That's how simple the act of obedience that God is calling them to is. Moses, I know you're not that eloquent of an orator, so I'm going to have you just go tell your brother to do something, and then he's going to throw a stick. I'll do the rest. So they do. And just like it has happened before, the stick, it says in the translation I'm looking at today, uh, becomes a cobra. The the word, the Hebrew word behind... uh, this is serpent or snake or cobra or sea dragon. It's it, it served multiple purposes. If you've ever heard me talk about biblical language, sometimes uh, words in, in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek can function with a bunch of different types of meanings or a range of meanings in English. And so uh, the idea here is that they have thrown the staff down and it has become a serpent or a cobra or a snake, something of that, that measure. Now, this is where uh, the difference between story time and real time can mess with us. And again, depictions that we've seen in movies can mess with us. Because here, if you've got, you know, I don't know, the movie The Prince of Egypt in mind, Moses is there and Pharaoh's there with all of his religious experts and the, the rod becomes a snake. And then the, the magicians from Egypt, they come and they do the same thing. And it's this whole big show. But in reality, what's happened here is they've come to Pharaoh and they've performed this miracle. Well, no, God has performed the miracle. Remember, Moses just talked to his brother and his brother threw a rod down. That's all they did. God turned the rod into a snake. And that's important here. God turned the rod into a snake. Pharaoh sees this, and he consults. He goes back. He's pondering it. Wow, this is a pretty wild thing that I've just seen here. I'm going to go back to my religious experts. And remember, in ancient times, um, 
you know, the Israelites, they have their God, who is the one true God, but uh, many different peoples had many different gods. And so when they go to the religious experts, uh, he's not consulting Egyptian religious experts that believe in the one true God. They have a bunch of different deities and a bunch of different thoughts and ideas and worldviews that are mixing in here. And as they're deliberating, they're huddling together like, what does this mean that the staff turned into a snake? The magicians that are part of the group, they come... And it says that they come back and they perform the same thing. And the translation here says that they're using their secret knowledge. The problem is the Hebrew word here, uh, this word is the only time that this occurs in the entirety of the Old Testament. And a, a better way of saying it than secret knowledge is, is that they basically use sleight of hand or tricks. If you've ever gone to a magic show, and they've wondered, whoa, how did they do that? But there's a secret behind it. That's what they're doing here. Maybe they hid the snakes in a box, and they had a curtain, and they went, voila! You know, once they put the, the staffs in the box, and then they pulled the box up, there were snakes. Now, this is all well and good that they were able to duplicate or mimic the staff and the snake trick. But remember, who did the staff into the snake? Was it Moses? No. Was it Aaron? No. God did. The duplication of the trick by these Egyptian magicians was just their way of using sleight of hand to make it look like they've done the same thing. But they haven't. And God's about to prove that they haven't. Because while their snakes that were rods are there, do you know what happens with Aaron's staff that's now a snake? It devours theirs. Gone. But when you read the story, it concludes with what we already know is going to happen. It says, Pharaoh isn't persuaded. See, he was baffled by the miracle. But when he went back to his religious experts, the magicians came forward and they mirrored the trick. And that was enough for Pharaoh to say, ah, this is nonsense. What my magicians have done is probably the same thing that Moses and Aaron have done. They've also used slate of hand. They've got snake. We've got snakes. Oh, well, that their snake ate these ones, which is weird. But anyway, that's where it ends. And it isn't surprising because God has said from the get-go that Pharaoh is not going to be moved. Which then begs the question, what was the point? If God knows that Pharaoh's not going to be persuaded by this miracle act of God, then why do it in the first place? Well, if you go back through the story again, and we recount what has happened play by play, God has told Moses and Aaron what the instructions were going to be. They adhered to the instructions. God did what he said he was going to do in the situation. 
Pharaoh did what God said Pharaoh would do in the situation, and that's that. You see, oftentimes in life, we look at Moses and Aaron, and they, in this situation, are the obedient ones. Moses says the stuff to his brother that he's told to say, and his brother throws the staff down as he was told to do. That is obedience at its most pure and simple form. God said to do it, and they do. The Egyptian magicians, however, are different. They look at the situation. They've taken in the huddle from all the wise men of Egypt, and they say, you know what? We can do this our own way, and we'll correct the situation. We will persuade Pharaoh by doing it our own way. And so they, by tricks and sleight of hand, they go and mimic the miracle. But it's just a mimicry. It's not an actual miracle. The only one that actually did anything miraculous was God. The only ones interested in persuading anyone in the story were the magicians. They were interested in persuading Pharaoh to not believe what Aaron was literally throwing down. And God was not interested in persuading Pharaoh either. Maybe at best you could say that he was interested in persuading Moses and Aaron, except for the fact that Moses and Aaron have already been persuaded. Yes, it took a lot to get Moses to this point. He came up with every excuse on the way there, and then some Nevertheless, Moses and Aaron are still standing there in front of Pharaoh doing what God has said to do and saying what God has said to say. So there's a larger lesson here. See, I want to say that I relate to Moses and Aaron in this situation. But as I said before, I told you the one time I've got it right. When I was with my buddy Joe... And I knew better that I needed to listen to his advice rather than just say, well, I'm the one with the title, so you're going to listen to me. Because he knew the better way to get the job done than I did. But most of the time, I've struggled with the idea of thinking, I can do it better. I can do it faster. I can be the one to persuade. I can be the one to get the task done. Friends show up with a marriage problem. Don't worry, I can go sit for hours and try to talk them into fixing it and it'll all get better, right? Friends having a crisis of faith, don't worry, I can go give them all the apologetic stuff and say all the right stuff and it'll all just poof, get fixed, right? No. See, all too often... I find myself not in the shoes of Moses and Aaron in their obedience, but in the shoes of the magicians. Thinking my way is better. Thinking my way is more persuasive. Thinking my way will get the job done. And at the end of it, the Egyptian magicians do get what they want. They persuaded somebody. Pharaoh. They didn't persuade Aaron and Moses, and they didn't persuade, surely, the one true God. 
And that's why the big lesson here in this story is that we, we as people, are called to take steps, but God leads the movement. We take the steps, God leads the movement. And what is the movement? The goal here isn't to convince Pharaoh. The goal here isn't to make Moses and Aaron the perfect images of faithfulness. Do you know what the goal is? By a strong and mighty arm to lead the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. And God actually can do it by himself. He has chosen to pull Moses and his brother Aaron into the mix and given them the honor and privilege as faulty human beings to have the opportunity when called upon to do and to say as God calls them to do and say. But God ultimately will do the rest. All Moses and Aaron did were say some words and throw down a stick. God made the stick a snake. All Moses and Aaron ever do in the story is they go say some words to Pharaoh. God performs the plagues. All Moses ever does is put his staff where God tells him to do, but God parts the sea. All the people do is cry out to God that they are in distress because of their slavery. But God comes to rescue. All we ever do is repent of our sin and recognize that we don't want to continue deviating from God's path. And God sends his son. We take the steps the small, simple steps of obedience. Say the words. Do the task. Put one foot in front of the other. But God leads the movement. God calls us out of bondage. And while that can be hard to hear, and even more so, hard to learn, It is a wonderfully freeing message. I used to struggle. I I mentioned, you know, friends uh, going through marriage issues. And and that was one of the, like, real kickers for me in ministry because I I thought that if I was the right friend and the right presence, I could fix things. And over and over and over again, even when I thought I was making strides to help people out, things would not end the way that I wanted to see them end. And I eventually had a friend come and tell me something, and I, and I apologize, I don't remember who said it, but I remember the phrase to this day. They said, you know, the issue is, is that you are acting as if you are responsible for those people, and you're not. You're only responsible to them. And that's the key. The responsible to them means that we take the steps. But responsible for them, that's God's part. You've heard the phrase before, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. If somebody's hungry, you can offer them food, but you cannot make them eat. If somebody's hungry for spiritual food, 
You can give that to them, but you cannot make them eat it. You cannot make them take it in. See, too often in life, when we are trying to live out the will of God, we fail to recognize that in living out God's will, it is not our position to put ourselves in the place of God. God leads the movement, not us. We just take the steps of obedience. When God calls us to share a word with someone, we share it. What God does with that person in light of the word shared is up to him and them. You know, even Jesus says, make disciples to his disciples. But do we make disciples with our own words and our own efforts? No. We baptize them and we teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, not us. It is an incredibly freeing and yet convicting reality that we take the steps and God leads the movement. Because it means the burden of the movement is not on me. But it does mean the calling to step into it has been issued to me. The privilege of stepping into it has been issued to me and to you and to everybody that calls themselves disciples of Jesus, followers of the Most High God. And that then also means that everyday opportunities to take the step, say the word. The opportunities to say the word to one person or to throw down the stick are always before us. But it calls us to trust that God can and will do the work that only he can do. And that's the story of the Exodus so far, isn't it? The people that have been a part of God moving the needle forward to the rescue of the people of Egypt have simply done the thing that they were called to do in the moment, and they let God take care of the rest. And Moses, he's had his ups and downs. He tried to do it his own way, and it led to disaster. He tried to get out of doing it God's way, and God wouldn't relent. And finally here in a moment, no burning bush involved, no big overtures involved. All he has to do is say a word to his brother, and God will do the rest. And I think that is a powerful testimony of the faith that we are called to and invited in because of what Jesus has done for us. We take the steps. God leads the movement. God has always led the movement. Are you going to answer the call to take the steps? That's the question. And we remember and celebrate that call every week we take communion. When Jesus had gathered his disciples together on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And he took a cup, and he offered them to drink it, and said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus didn't just die as a sacrifice, but he died to make a way to live the calling that he calls us to. And it was only in light of not only his death, but his resurrection and ascension into heaven, and then that promise that he would send the Spirit to empower and embolden the disciples, that they took the steps to follow God in the movement 
to change the world with the power of the gospel. We don't just remember his death when we take communion. We celebrate the whole story. And so I'm going to invite you this morning to take a moment and contemplate the movement that God is leading. The call to us to be his disciples and the way that God made for us to do it. And after we've had that moment to reflect, we'll take communion together as a church family. take and eat. This is his body which is given for us. In the same way, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for uh, the stories where we can see your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, your power, and your ability and timeliness to always come through. And even though your timeliness doesn't always fit in with our desired timing, we know that you are trustworthy and true. And we thank you for the fact that you have called us to live a life uh, and step with you, in relationship with you, and that you have given us not only the way, but the power to do so, that you never leave us alone. And God, we pray that you will help us to be reminded of that as we go about our lives, that the burden of the whole isn't on us, that we are called merely to do our part, and that you don't leave us alone in doing so, but you show us the way, and you give us the power, and you encourage us. And I pray, God, that... uh, We as individuals will be reflective of that in our love for one another as a church body and our love for the world that you sent your son Jesus to die for. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.